following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. And pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw for yourselves wherever you can find it. But your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task each day, as as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? The foremen of the people of Israel came to and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, Make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is your own people. But Pharaoh said, You are idle. You are idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble. When they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron, who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, The Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. And we're going to stop right there. Um, it's great, great how I love it when a plan comes together, right? Uh, wouldn't you love to be Moses in this in this story? You know, he's he's doing something he didn't want to do. It's a it's a job he did not volunteer for. He faithfully obeys God, and it's a disaster. It's a disaster. Have you ever felt this way in your Christian walk? Um, and it kind of raises a question. If you kind of look back at your life, um, what did you think becoming a Christian would do for you, right? When you first started coming to Christ, started following him, what did you think it was going to do in your life? Uh, Of course, probably you had some sense that it's going to get me out of hell and into eternity in heaven, but did you think it would do something for your life now? Did you think that it would fix your problems or make your life easier or make you at least feel better. Uh, I recently saw on Facebook, I love Facebook, great ammo. Uh, somebody had written, they were in, kind of having some hard times. And this person, I believe to be a Christian, and they, 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 they appealed to karma. I'm like, holy moly, uh, they need to come live in, in Thailand, right? Um, and, you know, the, the sad thing is I think a lot of Christians kind of live out or believe in like this Christian karma. That, you know, if, uh, if I do enough of the right things, 
the things that God wants, and I stay away from enough of the bad things, the good things will come into my life. Right? So, you know, if I go to church, check that box off. I was there every Sunday this month, right? Uh, I read my Bible almost every day, check that box off. You know, help the poor, do some good deeds, that's the good stuff. And if I stay away from the bad stuff, like I haven't murdered anybody yet this whole month, it's pretty good. You know, I don't lie too much. Basically, you know, at least be somewhat better than the typical presidential candidate. Um, then God, like, owes me something, right? I should get, I should get good luck. I should get good karma. Um, but what happens if we do all the right things? We, we try hard, but instead of getting good karma, we get bad karma. Instead of things going the way we want and life getting easier, it actually gets harder. Right? How do we feel? How do we respond when that's exactly what happens? And that's happened many times in my life. I, mean, I can't tell you how many times I committed, today I'm going to really start walking with God. I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to pray. I would get up at you know, 4 o'clock in the morning. Okay, it was 7 and, uh, and, you know, I'd read my Bible and I'd pray and I'd, I'd be happy. And I'd think, man, this is going to be a good day. And boom, like, the, it's the worst day ever. Right? It's like, man, God, where's the karma, right? Well, that's kind of where Moses is. And, and you know, he's doing the right things. He's walking in obedience. And it is a disaster. It is a disaster, right? So... What do we do with this? Because this is a part of life. And how do we, how do we deal with this? Well, let's look at it. The um, story starts off with a, a, Thus saith the Lord. Thus says the Lord. Um, Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh, and they, they proclaim, This is what God says. Thus says the Lord. It's the first time in the Old Testament this phrase is used, but it, it comes to be a formula for a prophetic declaration. So from here on out through the Old Testament, lots of prophets would come uh, hearing a message from God and delivering that message to a people. And they would begin every time with this formula, thus says the Lord, God has spoken to me and he has a message for you and you need to pay attention to this message. And he goes to Pharaoh with that statement. This is not my idea. This is not me. Thus says the Lord, thus says Yahweh, uh, the God of Israel, let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Um, so he identifies who the God of Israel is. It's Yahweh, the God of Israel. And he's got some very simple instructions. Uh, you're to let the people of Israel go. And the, the word go that's used here is the idea of, of really go free. To grant someone uh, freedom to, to go into an activity. Now, I don't know that it, you, could, you could say that Moses is asking for their permanent freedom from slavery, but he's certainly saying you need to give them liberty to go into the wilderness and hold this feast to the Lord, uh, this uh, religious pilgrimage, if you will, to celebrate uh, our God. Um, and apparently Egypt was not a suitable or fitting place for this. Uh, God is a holy God and God did not want to be worshipped in Egypt. He wanted to be worshipped outside of Egypt. Um, so, so that's what God says. And, and Pharaoh responds. He says, verse 2, who, who is the Lord 
that I should obey his voice and let Israel go. I don't know Yahweh. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. Uh, Pharaoh asks a fundamental question here. Who is Yahweh? Who is this God of Israel? And, uh, you know, Pharaoh, uh, in his worldview, the world is controlled by all these little gods. Uh, the, the most powerful ones, he believed, lived in and ruled over the land of Egypt and had blessed Egypt and made Egypt the most powerful nation in the world in that day and had made Pharaoh uh, an agent uh, really almost on the level of one of these gods, powerful ruler, right? And uh, the way his worldview worked is the lesser nations were lesser because they had lesser gods, right? So where does that put Israel on the scale of nations, you got Egypt, the ruling power, the superpower of the world at that time. You've got Mesopotamia. You've got other countries that were also world powers, right? They're a little notch lower. But where's Israel? Israel is a nation that doesn't even have property, right? They're slaves in a, foreign, in a land that's not their own. On the scale of nations, where does that put them? Well, on the very bottom, very bottom. It's like, your God, your God wants to tell me what to do? You've got to be kidding, right? You're a worthless nation, and as, as worthless as you are, your God must be like, you know, a skin, skinny as Pastor Tim. I mean, you know, just, you know, uh, are you kidding, right? It's a pathetic God. And so he, he really mocks, his, his, his response is quite mocking. He's really making fun of who, who is this Yahweh, and he specifically says, why should, I, why should I obey? Literally, why should I listen to his voice? What is there about Yahweh that I should pay any attention to anything he has to say? Um, so he, he in, in essence, really mocks Moses and mocks Moses' God. So Moses comes back, Moses and Aaron, round two, not giving up that easy. And I've and I got, got to kind of give Moses some credit here. Uh, he doesn't just go away going, see, God, I told you it wouldn't work. Which, by the way, this is exactly, if you remember Moses' second response when he's having the conversation at the burning bush and Moses says, who, God, who are you? Right? The same exact question that Pharaoh asked. Moses knew that Pharaoh would have no respect for Yahweh, for God. Right? For the great I am would mean nothing to Pharaoh. And that's exactly what's happening. But Moses doesn't give up. He goes back in there, round two, puts the gloves back on, and he says, the God of the Hebrews has met... And I can picture him saying this, like, okay, he didn't get it the first time. And you know when you're talking to somebody in, a, in another language you don't speak very well, and they didn't understand you the first time, what do you do when you repeat yourself? Talk louder, enunciate more. So I can see, I can see Moses saying, the God, the God of the Hebrews spoke to us right, to go three-day journey. Right? I don't know, maybe not. Um, he repeats the instructions, right? We're to go, we're to sacrifice. We are to worship our God. Uh, and it's, it's, it's a command, right? This is not an option for us. God has commanded us to do this. Um, and, and here he uses a different word, go. He doesn't say, go, give us freedom. He uses the word, go as in on a trip. Let us travel three days outside of Egypt, out into the wilderness, where we can offer appropriate worship to our God by offering sacrifices to Yahweh. Um, 
And, and he says, he, he hits, and it's interesting, up to this point, God, in, in, as it's recorded in Exodus, God didn't actually say this, but we assume God had put this on Moses' heart. He says, if we don't do this, pestilence and sword may fall on us. In other words, the God of Israel is not one to mess with. When he commands things, he expects people to listen and pay attention and do exactly what he commands. And if you don't, there will be consequences. Now, of course, as we know, as the story unfolds, actually there is pestilence and sword. It does not fall on Israel. It actually falls on Pharaoh. Uh, but at this point, uh, Moses makes the point, you, you don't disobey our God. Right? It will cost us. Um, so, so as God speaks his word, summarizing a couple points here, um, uh, the, thus saith the Lord God, when God speaks, he speaks through messengers, his prophets, which he's done from Moses through the prophets of the Old Testament, uh, through, of course, supremely through Jesus, through the apostles, through preachers and evangelists, and up into this very day. God is speaking his word through his messengers. And you and I are called to be messengers proclaiming his word. We don't make up the message. We simply deliver the message that God has put to us through his word. And at the heart of that message, God calls people everywhere to hear him and to listen. Okay, God expected that Pharaoh, doesn't matter who it was, that he pay attention to his word. And as God speaks his word, both through creation, through the word, through Jesus, through his messengers, his expectation is that people everywhere are accountable uh, to listen and to respond appropriately to his word. And that was true for Pharaoh and all of Egypt. Um, and finally, uh, ultimately, his word is calling people to come and worship him. Right? They are summoned to worship. We are, we are summoned. All people are, are summoned to acknowledge him as the great creator, the great I am, and to worship him. Um, so, so that's... That's the message that Moses delivers. And what's very fascinating, if you jump all the way down to verse 10, I don't have it, but if you have it in your Bibles, or I'll read it, verse 10, uh, there's some stuff that happens in between we'll talk about, but uh, Pharaoh's taskmasters are given a message, and they go out and they proclaim this message to the people of Israel. And it begins this way. It says, The taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh. Powerful, right? Thus, is, thus says God. Well, now thus says Pharaoh. Pharaoh, as if he were a God, has issued a word to his messengers who speak that word to his people. As if to say, yeah, Yahweh may give me a message, uh, but um, it's, I'm the one who's in charge here, right? We don't need to listen to what Yahweh has to say. I'm the supreme commander here. I'm the one who gets to say, thus says Pharaoh. I'm the one who gets to give orders around here. And people need to pay attention to my orders. And his order is simply this. Get back to work. Right? Just Pharaoh, Moses, and, and Aaron. Get back to work. Get to work. You guys are distracting people from their burdens, their labor, their heavy toil. Uh, stop taking the people away from their job. Right? You're, 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 you're trying to give them rest. They don't need rest. They need labor. That's what's good for them. Get back to work. Uh, and to make matters worse, uh, Pharaoh says in verse 10, uh, the order, thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it, uh, but your work will not be re reduced. He says basically, 
look, you think you have time to take three days off for a vacation, which would have been more than three, by the way, because a three-day journey out, celebration, presumably three-day journey back. They're, they're taking like a two-week vacation. He says, you, got, you, got time for a two, you guys have time for a two-week vacation? If you've got so much time in your hands, I'm going to give you more work. Right? So he says, I'm not going to give you any straw anymore. You've got to go gather it on your own. Um, which was a huge burden, added burden to the uh, Israelite slaves. Uh, there were basically two ways to make bricks in that time period in Egypt. One was to take clay and fire it in a kiln. And the baking process would make it hard as rock, like bricks we use today, or kiln fire. Um, to do that, though, you had to have wood. And during uh, this period, and pretty much ever since, they had so deforested Egypt that there wasn't a tree left anywhere in Egypt. Uh, all their wood had to be imported from other countries. So there was no way to fire a kiln. So uh, the way to get around that is they could bake the clay in the sun, but it wasn't quite as strong. So to reinforce it, they would, they would chop up straw, and the straw fiber would mix in with the clay, and it would make it stronger. Uh, so they had to have, had to have straw. Um, so the, the way it would work when they harvested the, the, the grain, uh, the wheat, whatever, barley, uh, Pharaoh would collect all the straw and gather it into a warehouse that, that the, the, the Hebrews, the Israelite slaves, could go get. So here's the deal. He says, I'm not going to give you any of the straw that's, that's in storage. You need to go out and find it. Well, where would they find it? Well, it had all been gathered and was in, in Pharaoh's control. It means there was no straw, right? So what was left was out in the field, you know, when they chop up and eat, like at rice harvest, you see this. They chop the rice stalk down and they leave a little stump, right, like this, okay, of stubble. That's all that was left. So in addition to making bricks, they have to go out and they have to pull up the stubble. Uh, it's not enough. They have to chop it. They have to find ways to get it from the fields back to where they're making the bricks. It's a huge extra task. Uh, of labor. Um, and, and, and finally, uh, Pharaoh uh, gives these, these final words in verse 8 and 9. He says, here's the problem. They are lazy. Right? They're just trying to get out of work. That's why they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. Okay, in the end, he's saying, look, they're just a bunch of lazy people full of lying words. Uh, in other words, Pharaoh didn't believe Moses came from God. Or if he did come from God, he didn't believe that this God, this Yahweh, had any business messing with the Pharaoh of Egypt. He says, it's just lies. It's just lies. It's either lies from Moses, who's made this up, or it's lies from his God, who shouldn't be messing with the most powerful man in the world. And so he, he makes the point. Yahweh, his messengers, his people need to be taught a lesson. I'm going to show Yahweh who's in charge. I'm going to show who gets to make the orders here. And not only are you not going to go worship your God, you're going to do a lot more work. Um, and I will show you what will happen if you don't obey me. So things really do go from bad to worse for the Israelites. 
Um, verse 14, the foremen of Israel were beaten, right? They couldn't, they couldn't keep up the quota. They couldn't produce enough bricks. Um, they couldn't manage getting the straw and keeping up the, the daily quota. So they are beaten, and they go to Pharaoh, and they said, um, why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given, yet you want us to make the same number of bricks. It's your own fault. Right? And Pharaoh replies, you're lazy. You're lazy, lazy people. That's why you say, let's go sacrifice to Yahweh. Now go, get back to work. No straw will be given you. Um, truly, Pharaoh does not in any way heed God or his word. Um, so, uh, so, so first off, here's the result of, of Moses' mission to Pharaoh, right? Moses' obedience, Moses faithfully doing what God called him to do. Here's the result. First off, Pharaoh ignores him. Second of all, things get way worse for the Israelites, right? Now they're in a situation where there's no possible way they can keep it up and they cannot make the quota and now they're starting to get beat for it, right, and threatened. And finally, I love this best of all, Moses gets blamed for it, right? Verse 20, and they came out for Moses, so the, the taskmasters go in, they complain to Pharaoh, Pharaoh says, quit crying, get back to work. They come out, they meet Moses and Aaron who are waiting for them. And they said, these taskmasters said to Moses and Aaron, the Lord look on you and judge you because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and you put a sword in their hand to kill us. Um, they, don't, they don't really, they don't blame God. Okay? They don't say curse on God. They say curse on you, Moses. And, and basically this is what's happened. They don't believe Moses came from God. It says, God, I, may God look on you and may God judge you. And the assumption is this, that God would not do this. God would not make promises to deliver us and then in the end just make our burden heavier and more impossible. God wouldn't do that. So remember, uh, Pharaoh did all this so that they would not listen to lying words. That's exactly it. Pharaoh's plan worked. They said, Moses, you're a liar. You're a deceiver. You are not speaking for God. God would not do this to us. This is all your fault. Right? We're going to die and our blood will be on your hands. Um, so how do you think Mo Moses is feeling about now? <laughs> right? Uh, if I was Moses, I'd be, okay, God, I did my thing. I'm going back to Midian. I'm going back to you know, growing sheep. Uh, enough, right? Uh, how do we deal when, when our obedience, our genuine faithful effort to serve and follow God meets with disaster, meets with failure, meets with hard things, right? What do we do with that? What is Moses supposed to do with this? For that matter, what are the Israelites supposed to do with this? Well, I think there's three things that we can, we can learn from this. First one, uh, their problem is that they were focusing on the present, not the future. Right? They were so caught up, in, and, and rightfully so. I mean, these people are suffering terribly. Uh, the earlier descriptions in Exodus, um, 
you know, the pharaohs were trying to kill them through this labor. So it's not just that they had, you know, kind of an eight to five job. They were being crushed under the weight of this labor. And now it's even worse. It's understandable that they couldn't see past their immediate situation and their suffering. Um, but what they really needed to see was much farther down the road, right? They needed to see the long-term goal. And, and they, couldn't, they just couldn't imagine that God could promise to bless them and that suffering could somehow be a part of that blessing. Right? If you remember when Moses and Aaron had gone to the elders and they showed them the signs and it says they told them that God sees your suffering and he hears your cries and he knows your situation and he wants to do something to redeem and rescue you. And they got their hopes up, they got excited. Uh, they were convinced, yeah, God's going to fulfill his promise and his blessing. And, and, and then all of a sudden things get worse. They go, this can't be related to God's promises or his blessing. And, and uh, they make the same mistake that we do and that we confuse the blessing with the journey. Right? They confuse the final blessing and promise with the journey that it takes to get there. Another way to put this is, is we need to focus on the finish line, not the race, right? Uh, God was going to keep his promise. He was going to bless them. He was going to bring them to the promised land. And by the way, it was a blessing that they could not earn or deserve, right? There's nothing that they did, no amount of good work or good deeds or good efforts was the basis for that blessing. God was going to bring them to the promised land because he had compassion on their suffering and because he had made promises to their forefathers. Um, but they were confused because they didn't realize that God would fulfill his promise and the, and the promise would be full of blessing and goodness. But the road to get there was going to be hard. It was going to be a journey through suffering and through a wilderness and through a desert and through some trials. Um, you know, we can learn a lot from this lesson, right? Because it's so easy when life is going hard for us, when we're not getting our way, when we're not, you know, we're, we're, we're suffering, we're, we feel like we're failing, to say, God, I thought you were going to take care of me. I thought you promised to bless me and work in my life and use me. And I'm trying to follow you. And it's, I just keep failing. I just keep Self-destructing. I mean, bad things keep happening, right? Uh, where's the karma? God says, you know, this is not about karma, right? I am um, going to bless you, but my blessing is completely unmerited. There's nothing you can do to earn it. And my blessing is at the finish line, ultimately, not here and now. Um, as followers of Christ, God has promised to bless us in many ways. And certainly in salvation, there is huge blessing. I mean, we have been set free from sin and death. He has brought forgiveness. He is working in our life. And, and many of us experience daily huge blessings. Right? There is a sense in which his kingdom has come. But it's not the final kingdom. It's not the completed kingdom. Right? What is the finish line for us? Well, it's that day when Jesus returns in glory and he gathers his people to him. Uh, and he fulfills the kingdom, right? And that's going to be a good day, right? Because there will be no more sickness, no more suffering, no more tears, no more, no more sorrow. 
I'm telling you, life is going to get really, really good on that day because of what Jesus has done to take away our punishment and through the blood and through the cross to give us eternal life with the Father. Right? Okay, but we're, the finish, we're not at the finish line. Right? Today is not the finish line. Today is the race. And if any of you have run a race, more than 100 meters, 100 meters doesn't count, right? Run a real race, a long one. Uh, you know that there's a lot of pain in getting to the finish line, especially if you're trying to push yourself to the limit. It's, it's hard, right? And there's many times as you run the race, you say, I just want to give up. I just want to quit. But you keep going because... You know there's a reward at the end. You know there's a treasure. If nothing else, you get to stop. Get to stop, right? That's good. Uh, but there, there could be other rewards as well. Success and fame and Olympic gold or, you know, snacks, depending on what level you're running at. Um, right? It's about the finish line. God has promised us... Uh, Reward, but it's not yet. Right? It wasn't yet for Israel. That does not mean he's not keeping his promise. Um, and as we pursue the, f- the finish line, as we focus on the end, we need to be clear about what the real blessing is. Uh, the error of the prosperity gospel is not that God does not want to bless you. Right? God wants to bless you. And here, here's the thing. God wants to bless you about 10 million times more than what you can even imagine. Right? We, we sell God far too short on what his blessing is. But the problem is that, um, uh, in, really in two errors, the first is that the blessing uh, is promised now and not at the finish line. Right? That's one of the errors of the prosperity gospel, is that God's blessing comes to us immediately at salvation. That God wants to bless you now. Uh, and that's the error of the Israelites. They thought, well, God... God needs to fix my problem today. God really cares. He's got to rescue me today. But God didn't promise that to Israel or to us. Second error, which is even more important, is understanding prosperity. You know, the prosperity gospel understands prosperity in terms of material blessing only. In other words, if God really loves me, he's going to make my life easy and comfortable. Okay, now, honestly, honestly, how many of you want that to be God's blessing in your life? Yeah, I want that, right? I want life to be easy and comfortable. I don't usually pray, God, I got it way too good. Can you please inflict me with the plagues of Job? Right? I don't pray that, right? I want life comfortable and easy. But is that what God's great blessing really is? Well, no, right? When we get to heaven, we cross that finish line. What's going to be great about it is not just that life is comfortable and easy. It will be, right? No more sickness. No more, I won't be old anymore, right? And I'm, I'm, I'm really resenting this getting old every day, right? So I can't wait to shed this body and have a body that doesn't ache every morning. It's a good thing. But that's not the best part. The best part, the greatest treasure is that we get to live daily, moment by moment, in the very presence of God. See, that's the, that's the ultimate blessing, is God himself. Uh, we get to come before our Father as his children, 
And he is going to grab us and he's going to wrap his arms around us and the God of the universe is going to hold us to his bosom as dearly loved children and we are going to be at home. There is no treasure greater than God himself. Um, So so that's, you know, Israel had a lot to learn. We have a lot to learn, don't we? We get so focused on here and now We lose sight of the blessing, which is God himself, which we will one day achieve in all its glory and fullness. This summer I got to go spend a lot of time with my grandkids in the States, which was super fun. Um, And uh, I I made the great discovery that my grandkids are really lazy and watch too much video games. So uh, it's the world they live in. So I decided I need to get these kids outdoors. Right, so I had this great idea. So I had this great idea that we're going to take these kids hiking. Isn't that awesome hiking in the Colorado mountains, the lovely, beautiful Colorado mountains. This is the best thing ever, right? Well, actually, to a seven-year-old, it's not. Uh, they were not all that impressed. My seven-year-old grandson thought this was torture, right? So, but I was determined. I'm going to. I'm going to. You know. So I applied this principle: focus on the finish line, not the race, right? I applied this principle. I said, okay we're going to hike up to this really awesome waterfall, right? And it's kind of a long journey to get there, but believe me, it's going to be worth it. Well, that worked for like the first hundred yards, right? It's like, oh yeah, cool waterfall. After about a hundred yards, and he'd already said ten times, are we there yet? Um, It's like, you know, it it dawns on me. To a seven-year-old, a scenic waterfall is about as significant as like, you know, eating liver or something. I don't know. Um, it wasn't. It was not selling it anymore. It was the wrong. It was the wrong prize at the finish line. So we hiked. We kept hiking. It was a hot day. I kept dragging them along. They kept complaining. Right. So I had this revelation. I was getting so hot and so thirsty. We'd run out of water, and I just started having visions of cherry limeades. Right. And so I told them, okay, here's the thing. If you do this all the way to the waterfall and back, we're going to go and I'm going to buy you your favorite sugared syrupy drink you want, whatever it is, shake, whatever. Okay, now we got a prize worth hiking for, right? That fired them up. That was a prize worth going for. Uh, Israel needed to see the long-term vision of what God was doing. We need to see the long-term vision, right? Don't get so caught in just what's going on in your life today. Um, right? The journey is not the finish line. There is a final destination. See that final destination. Second thing we can, lesson we can learn, uh, we need to be pursuing God's glory over personal comfort. Uh, here's one of the, the kind of the key question in this whole story, this whole account in verse 2, Pharaoh says, who is the Lord and why should I pay any attention to him? Um, The Israelites were not seeing the big picture. They were concerned only about their little world, which was grantedly miserable. And all they could see is what God was doing in relationship to them. What they didn't understand is that what God was doing was not just in relationship to Israel. That God was going to do something to proclaim and declare his glory to the world. Moses asked, or Moses, Pharaoh asked the wrong question. Who is God and why should I listen to him? And God says, I will show you. I'm glad you asked. I'm so glad you asked. 
because I'm going to show you who I am. And Pharaoh, when I am done with you, right, you're going to think happy the God of the Nile and Ra the sun god and Osiris your gods. You're going to think they're little two-year-olds, you know, preschool girls when I get done with them. And you will know who the great I am is. And, and, and you will bow and you will stand in awe of who I am. I am so glad you asked. Because uh, God is here displaying his glory to the world. That's what this is about. Of course, God has compassion for Israel. They are his chosen people. He has promised to rescue them. But he's going to do it in a way that displays his glory for Pharaoh and all of Egypt and all the world to see who the I am is. Right? I'll show you who I am is. I will show you. Um, and that's why God Pharaoh, uh, why God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Right? He says, I want to make it really clear. I want to show this stubborn guy. I'm going to make sure and show this stubborn guy who I am. Because um, there was a lot easier ways to do this. Uh, later on in Israel's history, when they were captives in Babylon in the exile, Ezra chapter 1, it says, God stirs up, stirs up the heart of King Cyrus, king of Babylon, to send the people back to Jerusalem. God could have done this. God could have just come on Pharaoh, could have shot him with Cupid's arrow, Cupid's arrow made him feel all like warm and fuzzy towards the Israelites. God's sovereign. He could do this and make him feel compassion for them and say, hey, you know, I, just, I, I, I love you guys, really. And, you know, what can I do to make life easier for you? Right? I could have done that. Didn't, didn't go there. Right? Why? Because he wants to glorify himself by displaying his power as the supreme God who is no match for any of the idols, idol gods of Egypt. So here's a question. Are we living for God's glory or our own personal comfort? Now, of course, we know the right answer. <laughs> of course, I'm living for God's glory. But the thing is, when life is not comfortable for you and you are suffering and you are facing trials and difficulties, do you rejoice or do you complain? Because that's the test, right? If you're really living for God's glory, you will rejoice. Praise God that my life can, that I can suffer and through my suffering, it is a gift of worship to God. When, when we complain and we, we are bitter towards God and we're resentful, we're angry, God, why are you doing this to me? What we're saying is, God, don't you know that I am the center of the universe and my comfort is more important than your glory? That's exactly what we're saying. And uh, it turns out your comfort is not more important than God's glory. And here's, here's the other sad reality. Your comfort is not God's first priority. Uh, sad news, right? Does this mean God does not love you? Absolutely not. God loves you more than you will ever know, but his love is not about making your life easy. His love is greater than that. Right? He has more that he wants to do in you and through you. Um, you know, maybe you're like the great theologian who said, well, I think God is most glorified when I am most comfortable. Well, it's actually not true. Um, you know, people who have suffered deeply, who are deeply committed to God's glory, have rejoiced in their suffering. They have praised God because 
They know that even through their suffering, maybe even more so through their suffering, the name of Jesus is made great. Last thing, we need to seek inward growth, not outward solutions. Um, the, the Israelites obviously had a lot, to, a lot of growing to do. They didn't really know a lot about um, God. right? They didn't have a lot of history with him yet. Um, they had a lot to learn. And God needed to show them that their real problem was not being slaves of Egypt. Their real problem was inward. It was being slaves of sin in the flesh. Uh, God needed to mold and shape and transform their inside person. And that's true for us. What do you do? What is your response supposed to be when life just stinks, when it's hard, when you're discouraged, when you're depressed? Well, focus on God's glory. Focus on the finish line. But lastly, be patient. Endure with patience. James 1, 2, and 3 says says it this way. We know this verse from James 1. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness or endurance or patience. Same same word. And, And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfected and complete, lacking nothing. Our response to all of this should be uh, enduring, having patience. What is patience? Uh, Patience partly is waiting. Um, But patience is more than waiting because usually when I know I'm not patient is when I'm having to wait and I don't want to, right? Right? You're waiting in that long line and the person at the very front is asking the, the the checkout person, 10,000 questions, right? And I'm just, just get on with it. And I'm waiting, but I'm not waiting patiently, right? What, what, what endurance is, is waiting with faith. Right? Patience is waiting with faith. It's waiting with a calmness that says, God is in control. God is going to accomplish his purpose. I just need to wait on him. And that was the lesson that, that the Israelites needed to, needed to learn, I just need to wait on God. I need to wait with faith that God is going to fulfill his promises. Right? And I've just got to be patient and trust him. What is your motivation for serving God? Is it so that your life will go well? Or is it so that he will receive ultimate glory and praise? Um, how are you doing waiting with faith? <laughs> Um, you know, it's a hard one for me. I am not a patient person. I, I got to work on that. God needs to transform me inwardly. And he will do it through the journey of suffering. Thirdly, are you getting bogged down on the present instead of looking to the prize, which is the Father himself? Right. Uh, let's just bow our heads. I'm going to have Ed come and he's going to lead our prayer time but just before God just uh, reflect on those questions you've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand for more information please view our website at www.ccfth.org